Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Hi, my name is Luke Cooper. I'm an academic with LSE Ideas um, at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I would recommend this episode for anyone who's thinking about how international and regional organizations like the European Union can support Ukraine to build an effective and fighting war economy that it needs to win its war of self-defense against Russia. Hello Visegrad Inside listeners, I am your host Malik Banat and this week I'm joined by the managing editor of Visegrad Inside, Galen Dahl, who just happens to be currently in the UK and actually might uh, in the following days be waking up to the third prime minister in what has been less than a month. Galen, great to have you. Hi Malik, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, we've all heard the joke roaming around Twitter about a piece of lettuce outlasting less trust. But jokes aside, um, let me start by asking for sort of an obituary tribute to Liz Truss's premiership. Galen, how would you describe her track record on relations with the EU in the short span of time she was in office? Oh, <laughs> uh, an obituary indeed. Um, I, I don't think in modern history, at least, the UK has ever had a leader um, with such a tumultuous and short um, uh, span at number 10. Um, okay, so uh, let's let's put it this way. Uh, she she kind of exemplified everything that's going wrong right now in UK politics um, while being uh, initially a, a staunch hardliner with issues regarding um, migration, energy, um, of course, the relationship with the EU. Um, but of course, um, this was just on the tails of her being the Secretary of State. Um, and in, in her tenure in that position, she had a rather... Uh, aggressive stance um, and wanted to, as we all know, um, rewrite issues like regarding the uh, North Ireland Protocol. But so too, um, there were issues, of course, with France uh, directly with uh, the migration boats and how they were being dealt with. There was just a very bombastic um, tone that she took both as foreign secretary. And it started to obviously thaw a bit as soon as she became prime minister. And that's, I think, when the reality dawned, um, probably specifically in relation to the energy crisis, that she realized that she was going to need Europe. And also, of course, with the exacerbating situation with Russia's attack in Ukraine, um, the UK do want to play um, an important role of European security. And that just entails you're going to have to have a closer relationship in general. I'm glad you actually mentioned the security relationship between the UK and the EU, as it is a driving element of one of the scenarios in our War and the Future of Europe report, uh, the scenario called United European Patchwork, where basically it is emphasized the extent to which Europe needs Britain in its security affairs. And this sort of being reciprocated by London looking to reverse the negative economic impact of Brexit. But the recent events have shown that the Tory government does not shy away from reversing on policy. Just before the resignation of PM Trust, it is still fresh in our memory that she dismissed her own colleague and appointee for the Chancellor of Eshikar position, Kwasi Kertang. Uh, blaming him for the blunder with the mini-budget, the mini-budget which promised to provide the biggest package and generation of tax cuts, but in reality was extremely unpopular in the public and for the markets. 
Now, even more recently, Quartung's replacement, Jeremy Hunt, has said that uh, no department is immune from future budget cuts. This has led to an important reaction from a figure inside the conservative government who has been seen as a pair of safe hands, relatively speaking, the UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. Wallace has warned against any such cuts in the defence budgets and uh, he was supported by his fellow deputy James Heapy in a promise to resign in case the pledge to spend 3% of GDP on defence by 2030 is not honoured. Uh, Galen, could defence spending come under threat with Truss's potential successor? Uh, and where does the issue stand in terms of the next general elections? Well, that's a broader question. I would say it's pretty easy to predict in the short term, as in to say a uh, loose trust successor, whoever that might be within the Tory party, will probably maintain the commitments to defense spending. And I would base that on the fact that uh, Jeremy Hunt and Ben Wallace have had a discussion um, after Jeremy Hunt announced that pretty much everything should be on the table. And there seemed to be an agreement that defense spending should stay on its course towards 3% by 2030. And I'm basing that on uh, uh, James Heapley, who is the Minister for Defense when it comes to uh, UK uh, veterans and such, reiterating uh, a very similar feeling. Um, But now, when it comes to the economic reality of the UK, we have to be aware of the fact that there are so many services that are about to be cut, and many people might say, well, if we could diminish defense spending by you know X, Y margin, we could then still supply very popular programs with funding. That will become more prevalent as a general election occurs, um, which most likely probably won't happen until the spring. But um, if it does, you could see some people on either party arguing for slightly decreased defense spending. I don't think it'll happen, though. I think in the long term, in the UK's mindset, they want to be part of the future European security uh, apparatus, as well as they're aware of the fact of how wide-ranging uh, of security issues are currently affecting them, and defense spending at that level makes sense. Well, that is reassuring to hear as a Ukrainian. And is it fair to say that no matter what party is in power, that the support for Ukraine will remain unshaken as many Central Eastern European countries would want it to be, uh, seeing the importance of UK security um, support and future guarantees for Ukraine? Oh, I can say undoubtedly, uh, at least in the UK, um, support for Ukraine is very, very high, both among the population um, as well as across the political spectrum. Um, Yes, okay, uh, there are actually some um, in, let's say, the Corbynite uh, labor uh, section that might want to decrease spending um, and also perhaps certain support. But let's let's when it comes to the Tory government as well as um, Keir Starmer, I can say that support for Ukraine will absolutely stay um, and I think increase over time. Um, I think once we get towards the rebuilding of Ukraine, I, I see you, the UK, the US, everyone kind of staying on board to really make sure that uh, th- there's a, at least a, a modicum of ongoing defense from whatever might happen in the coming years, unfortunately. Galen, you have read my mind once again. Another important player is the US. It is the only country that leads the United Kingdom in terms of military support to Ukraine. And it is also having elections in 2023. We are also seeing calls from the far-right GOP faction calling for sharp cuts through US aid. 
This definitely seems like of magnitude importance. So can you help us cut through the noise here? And how how is this news being perceived in Central Eastern Europe? It's a good point that you raise. Um, I think the reason that there is some ambiguity uh, from what the U.S.'s standpoint is stems from the following kind of issue. So essentially, I think everyone knows that Democrats and President Biden are behind Ukraine and supporting them, you know, um, well, as as much as they have been so far and going forward as well. The issue comes from kind of a split in the camp on the Republican side, where you have uh, the House Minority Leader, um, Kevin McCarthy, who is most likely going to become, well, potentially going to become the Speaker of the House uh, after the next election. And he has come out saying that he kind of is not as much in support for Ukraine, specifically when it comes to supplying uh, hard security. Now, this has been juxtaposed with Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Minority Leader, who has come out and vehemently disagreed with McCarthy's assessment of the situation. So uh, what, what I would say is, you know, for a Central European perspective, you do have um, yes, the the far right, even any kind of mega conservatives, kind of voicing concern over support of Ukraine. But when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, I would imagine that legislation in the House and the Senate would pass with uh, by by uh, partisan support for um, continuing both uh, the supply of weapons as well as thinking about longer term rebuilding of Ukraine from the U.S. So, uh, yes, there is some um, inconsistency uh, stemming from the U.S. standpoint, but I don't think in the long run that this actually reflects what both the people as well as the government of America want to see. And now we turn to our very special guest this week, Luke Cooper, a senior research fellow at LSCIDS and also the author of The Authoritarian Contagion, The Global Threat to Democracy. Stay tuned to find out what Ukraine, with the support of its Western allies, can do to avoid a forever war. Uh, Luke, a lot going on in the British domestic political scene, so I appreciate you greatly for making time to talk to us about something closer to my neck of the woods, the war in Ukraine. Uh, despite, of course, the consequences being very much felt all throughout Europe. Uh, in your latest piece for the European Council on Foreign Affairs, you and your colleague at LSE Ideas, Mary Calder, make a set of arguments in favor of a more neoliberal approach to governing the economy in Ukraine, which we will get to that in a moment. But you begin by placing significant emphasis on the definitions we use to describe Russia's war in Ukraine. This comes at a time when analysts and pundits are growing increasingly comfortable with the long war label, which is not surprising given Ukraine's determination to fight on, as well as territorial concessions being an indivisible issue for Ukrainian citizens. Meanwhile, imagination is running rather dry on how Russia can avoid a major military defeat on the battlefield, especially with continued Western support in the long term. Again, here I stress long term because you suggest that such a repetition risks becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that characterizes what you refer to as the forever wars. Um, Luke, what exactly does a forever war entail and what signs of that may we already be seeing in Ukraine? 
Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me on to talk about this. And you're right, um, we are we are talking from London at a time of great political chaos um, here in the UK. I would, if there are any uh, colleagues, friends from Ukraine listening to this podcast, I know that the British government is very well regarded in Ukraine, perhaps one of the places in Europe that it is very well regarded. Um, and I would just reassure them that support for Ukraine is a complete political consensus in the UK Parliament. So no matter uh, what the political outcome we see in the days and months ahead, I would expect that to stay the same. So there's quite a few elements of your introduction um, to pick up on. Um, the, the, I'll start with the last one, uh, which is this question of a forever war and the danger that the notion of a long war becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Here I will reference um, two friends and colleagues' work. The first on the danger that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I would refer to Timothy Schneider's work. Um, he argues very cogently that there is, uh, at the moment, no the, the war against Ukraine in 2022 i.e. the latest Russian war against Ukraine, despite its terrible carnage, despite um, the, the, the fact that it has been going on far longer than it should have, you know, one day of this war is too much. Despite those things, it does meet no definition at the moment of a long war. And there is a danger that how we talk about it, or if we talk about it in those terms, then the notion of a long war can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other intellectual source that I would reference here on the question of the forever war, and what is it, is Mary Cowdell's work on new or sometimes referred to as the new and old wars debate. And my colleague Mary argues that conflict in the 21st century has tended to undergo a transformation in the sense that wars tend not to take place between two state actors that are fighting for political objectives. Rather, they involve a multiplicity of different non-state actors, and they become very, very difficult to stop because the, the question of peace negotiation becomes really hard uh, to, to tackle when you have a multiplicity of different actors that have a incentive usually an economic incentive, to continue to fight. And so they're fighting not necessarily for a clear political objective, but war becomes something of a social condition, a way of uh, extracting resources from vulnerable populations and a way of securing a support base for armed groups. Now, what do those two different paradigms tell us about the Russian war against Ukraine? The first is that Ukraine is an example of a so-called forever war or a war that is difficult to stop in the following sense, i.e. since the first Russian invasion of Ukraine from uh, February 2014 uh, onwards. That involved the use of proxy uh, groups in the east of Ukraine that were allegedly fighting for their self-determination and liberation, a kind of non-state actor to some degree, but a non-state actor that's kind of fake in the sense that it was propped up 
by an external actor. So Ukraine has been living with the effects of a forever war, if you like, a war that's difficult to stop and which those actors in eastern Ukraine, the so-called people's statelets, uh, they had an interest in sustaining this conflict, sustaining um, this uh, war. And so, so, so this is an example, if you like, of a, of, a new, of a new war. In 2022, however, we, the war, Russian war against Ukraine has produced a classic political conflict, um, a cl- an old war, if you like, a war that, where there is two sides fighting for very clear political objectives. One side, the objectives can be defined as a combination of authoritarianism, imperialism, uh, empire building, uh, a regime that's backed up and um, cohered by a very, very extreme form of crony capitalism and rentier capitalism, i.e. the Russian side under the autocratic state of Vladimir Putin. And then on the other side, a, a side that's fighting for a clear political objective, the protection of Ukrainian um, democracy, uh, territorial integrity uh, and sovereignty, and that enjoys sweeping political support within the population for those objectives. And Ukraine's success to date, I think, is uh, due to, in in large part, its civic spirit, Um, the political legitimacy that its institutions enjoy and uh, the, 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 the coherence of society behind the political objectives of a Ukrainian victory. Now, the, the last thing I would say then is what does this mean for the dangers or what kind of downstream risks uh, do, do, could we identify in this uh, situation? Uh, the, the downstream risks are, are principally the economic situation that Ukraine faces. So, and I'm sure we'll come on to to talk more about this, but it will be very difficult for Ukraine to continue to maintain this civic character of its mass resistance with broad societal support if it suffers an ongoing economic collapse. And avoiding that economic collapse is therefore crucial to protecting Ukrainian democracy and sovereignty. Right. And um, speaking on the civic spirit you just mentioned, uh, in your piece, at least in my understanding, you granted a much more structural role. And um, as you predict with time and time, um, the civic spirit will come under more immense pressure as Ukraine, um, as you rightly point out, that Ukraine becomes more um, exacerbated largely due to economic reasons. Um, then you go on to suggest a couple of steps in bringing Ukraine closer to a traditional war economy. Um, firstly, it would be great if you can mention what these policies entail in practice to our listeners uh, who may have not read the piece yet. And secondly, I know you have had conversations with Ukrainian experts and policymakers about this. So what exactly makes you think that this is the right approach for Kiev right now? So you mentioned a word at the start of your introduction, neoliberalism, which is worth cashing out a bit in, in, in terms of getting to an answer to this question. So neoliberalism is the set of political paradigm ideology set of assumptions that really dominated our world economy for many decades and created structures and institutions that continue 
to persist in the world today. And it was broadly based on the assumption that markets left to their own devices would deliver efficient societies uh, that were highly prosperous um, and that sustained democratic um, institutions. And it's very much associated with the figures of Margaret Thatcher in Britain and Ronald Reagan in the United States from the 1980s that went a long way to really pushing the state, pushing state intervention out of our economy. Um, in recent years, I think there's been a global move away from many of those assumptions. And I see that as a good thing, I think, to deal with the econ ec economic challenges that we face. Uh, we need to have an interventionist state. We need to uh, carry through a transition to a green economy that's going to require massive state um, intervention uh, and support. And the principal effect that neoliberalism had was extraordinary increase in global economic um, inequality. And that's producing a lot of the political disruptions that we're now dealing with in 2022. So in, in a way, I know we use the word uh, neoliberalism in the article, but I, I should say that I think in general societies should be moving away from this. What we're talking about in Ukraine is something almost qualitatively different from that. And that is that whether normal markets, whether any kind of normal markets can function in a war scenario, and I would argue that they really they really struggle to function in a war scenario uh, when you think because for the simple reasons that the norms of capitalist um, investment and return really struggle to maintain their logic in a situation where societies uh, are facing continuous bombardment. I mean, take the example of insurance, for, for instance. That's just something that's completely elementary to any kind of market society, whether it's neoliberal or whether it's a mixed economy. Um, but how do you ensure a building? How do you ensure farmers to sustain uh, their crops if they if their machinery and uh, warehouses and so on uh, could be bombed or attacked by uh, an invading army? So the crucial point here is that markets can't really function normally in a war scenario. And that's why we argue that what Ukraine needs to be thinking about and pursuing is something modelled on the state planning instruments that were used uh, by the Allies during the Second World War, uh, Britain and the United States in particular, both essentially argued and uh, recognised that markets couldn't function in this total war scenario. And more or less, the state had to, in a way, take over the entire economy and direct labour, uh, so direct uh, the workforce and direct capital, so investment, towards the needs of the economy. And unfortunately, at the moment, Ukraine doesn't have that and isn't really pursuing that. And so rather than having a prioritizing, for instance, full employment, uh, we have a situation where Ukraine has, and there's quite a lot of uncertainty in the data, but I think for argument's sake, we can say that Ukraine has 
and a, a probably an unemployment rate at the moment of about one in three, so an extremely high unemployment rate. And what the state should be doing is basically putting that surplus labour force to work in industries that support the war effort. It's not an easy thing to do. It does take um, a will take a lot of investment. It will require raising taxes uh, in the domestic Ukrainian economy alongside international aid from Ukraine's allies. But it really you really need to direct the whole of society towards the prosecution of the war and use state planning instruments to achieve that. And um, to not to go a bit off track, but look, you know as well as anyone that Central Europe was seen for many years as politically doomed. And this is something you have written extensively about. Uh, the precise terminology you prescribe is called authoritarian protectionism. It talks about um, how the politics of an ethno-national partisanship character um, forms a contemporary challenge to democracy and democratic security, uh, which is essential, of course, for economic security. On a brighter note, you do suggest that certain events in the CEE can be seen as a harbinger of new opportunities for the democratic advance. Uh, and here what comes to mind is the grassroots opposition movements in Slovakia, Czechia, and yes, even Poland. My question is, is the war one such event for Ukrainians? And if this were true, what may be the unintended consequences, both positive and negative, of such a case? Oh, I think it's almost certainly a case of this happening for Ukraine. But I think we can go further back. I would say the Maidan revolution of 2013-2014 was a moment of democratic um, flowering of Ukrainian democracy and and brought into being this huge civic and civil society mobilization. Um, had uh, Russia been successful in prosecuting, um, it had been more successful in prosecuting its war of aggression. I was always of the view, and I don't, and obviously many other people were. It's not controversial, perhaps even a statement of the obvious that this was an unwinnable war for Putin, even if he had conquered uh, Kiev uh, very uh, quickly, for example. And that was for the simple reason that you saw all of these tremendous grassroots activity happening as soon as the war started. Um, computer engineers uh, going into the uh, basements of their apartment blocks and making Molotov cocktails. This was clearly going to be an ungovernable uh, country for the Russian invasion. And Ukrainian society was always going to resist in one way or another. And so in Ukraine itself, I think the post-2014 process is, and I have I certainly have some concerns about the economic policy, certainly, but but nonetheless, I think it's a process of democratic uh, transformation and civic-led democratic transformation. And that's the really crucial uh, part of this um, story. You mentioned my analysis of what I call authoritarian protectionism. And th th that, I guess, is, is I, I think that this is an important analysis for Ukraine in the following sense. On the one hand, the Russian regime itself is a worked and perfect example of authoritarian protectionism 
It's crony capitalist. It uses extreme uh, ethno-nationalist ideology. It goes further than most authoritarian protectionists in internationally in actually breaking the the what was meant to be the principle that everyone recognizes of sovereign equality and territorial integrity that underpins the international um, order and advances this basically a new colonial imperialism project. So it's a really extreme example of the trends that I talk about in the book, a fascist authoritarian protectionism, uh, if you like. Where I think more critically that authoritarian protectionism and my analysis speaks to events or, or provides a warning to Ukraine and for everyone else, is that I argue that authoritarian protectionism shouldn't just be seen as a Russian problem, shouldn't just be seen as a Chinese problem, uh, but is actually a general problem that societies are facing. So in situations where economic uh, resources tend to stagnate and contract, it generates fierce conflicts over the distribution of those resources and that it makes a politics of um, ethnic exclusion and scapegoating if you persuade an in-group, uh, one particular identity group, that they have fundamental interests in this scenario and environment where economic resources are stagnating and contracting, that those that the interests that are fundamentally opposed to all of these other um, groups, the outsiders, say Muslims in the West or uh, illegal immigrants or any uh, other uh, uh, such contemporary other that we find, then those insider groups may be willing to support attacks on democracy in order to allegedly protect their interests from these range of threats. And the importance for Ukraine and for everyone else is that this is a universal problem. It's a common problem that societies all over the world are facing. And so what it counsels in Ukraine and everywhere else um, is that we need to give incredible emphasis towards an inclusive democratic politics that is redistributive, that rather than produces a politics of ethnic antagonism, instead proposes a politics of economic redistribution and ecological transition. Indeed, and um, in your opinion, um, how do you see Europe's ability to help incorporate Ukraine in the EU fabric uh, beyond, of course, its current support? Yeah, well, the article that we um, wrote for ECFR that you mentioned earlier was responding to an ECFR report called Survive and Thrive. And that uh, made a number of positive recommendations about that we support about um, Ukraine's place in the contemporary European architecture or what the French call the European constellation. And they made a, a lot of, I think, sensible proposals on security guarantees uh, for Ukraine that would basically formalise the military support that Ukraine is currently receiving uh, from European and Western states, but in a uh, legal form, if you like. And so that's really important. I think it's positive that Ukraine has become a candidate country for European uh, membership. Uh, so that, that that's really welcome. However, it, it will take quite a long time 
for Ukraine, unfortunately, and, and for the other countries in the queue, the Western Balkan states in particular, I think to, to get into the European club formally, uh, many Western European nations, notably the French, uh, advocate changes in decision making um, before expanding the number of states in the club. And so I think it's going to be difficult to overcome that constitutional problem. So what happens to Ukraine in the short term? Now, there is a well-intentioned proposal out there, and it's been made in that report that I mentioned from the ECFR, but it's also been supported by a number of other people. The Ukraine should be granted immediate membership of the European uh, single market. And we think, although this is well-intentioned, it's actually very problematic because it doesn't take into account the specifics of Ukraine's situation. In fact, there's no precedent in European or global history, as far as we know, uh, for a country that is fighting a war in a total war scenario to be integrated into a huge and the world's most integrated free trade um, association and area, i.e. the European uh, Union, a highly integrated uh, free trade area. And so Ukraine couldn't plausibly um, compete on the same terms as Belgian producers, German producers, Italian producers, you name it, in the European single market. And actually what Ukraine needs uh, in order to fight uh, the war that it's fighting is a different kind of deal. It needs a deal that uh, looks at its existing association agreement with the EU and says, in what areas do we need to modify this association agreement to benefit and privilege Ukrainian producers? And that would could go alongside a domestic approach to reforming the Ukrainian economy that was along the lines I said earlier of recognising that markets can't function properly in this scenario and that there needs to be massive state intervention, uh, you need to mobilise the workforce and direct them towards industries that are producing products that um, support uh, the war effort. So we see in that example the really important factor of getting right the mix and interchange between the regional and international paradigm and uh, framework and the domestic policy. And if we get that mix right, then we can achieve full employment uh, in the Ukrainian economy and we can ensure that Ukraine has the kind of economy that will sustain its victory uh, in the war against Russia.